When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, what's going on? It's Uncle Jimmy. Welcome to Whitlock's Weekly Firestarters. This is where you tune into to find out what you missed this week in Fearless featuring Jason Whitlock. And without no further delays, hey, check this out on, on Monday's show. Monday was the end of Black History Month. And Jason asked, has Black History Month diminished black people? Mm, that's something to think about. All right, the final day of Black History Month is the perfect time to analyze the history of the annual event and explore the ramifications of it, strained from the vision of its founder. Carter G. Woodson envisioned the recording of black history as a second Bible, a mimicking of ancient Hebrews documentation of the lifetimes and impact of Jesus Christ. In 1915, Woodson, a journalist and author, founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. 11 years later, the association created, created Negro History Week, the precursor for what we now know as Black History Month. Woodson argued that the disparate plights of American Indians and Jews could be explained by one group having a written record of its history of accomplishment and the other not. Woodson designated the second week of February as Negro History Week as a way of spreading the gospel of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, the central white and black figures in the emancipation of black slaves. Lincoln and Douglass shared mid-February birthdays. Woodson understood the importance of building a gospel around the narrative of black people. In biblical terms, the gospel means the good news of Jesus Christ. Woodson used black history as a vehicle to disseminate the good news of black freedom. He saw himself as Paul writing a New Testament on black people's American journey. His good news approach to black history intended to define black people as key contributors to and irreplaceable assets for American exceptionalism. As practiced today, black history is no longer a gospel, a retelling and celebration of the good news of black American freedom. It's primarily a retelling of every atrocity, misdeed, and slight white people have committed against black people. Black History Month is the NCAA tournament for the victimhood competition. It's February Madness, a time for corporate media outlets to air content specifically designed to remind black people that their ancestors got a raw deal and that our interaction with white people determines our level of happiness and success. Black history has been turned into Satan's gospel. It's the bad news of what happened to black people at the hands of white people. Woodson's desire to cast black people as enthusiastic collaborators in American exceptionalism has been transformed into a damnation of this country's founding and narrative art. The New York Times' red-haired princess, Nicole Hannah-Jones, upended Woodson's gospel with the 1619 Project. That's why Black History Month focuses on the 1921 Tulsa race massacre rather than the mindset, philosophies, and actions of the men and women who built the so-called Black Wall Street. Do you get my point? A proper telling of history centers what the heroes did, not what happened to the alleged heroes. All right, let me explain it another way. What happened to Jesus is tragic and heartbreaking. What Jesus did over the course of his 33 years, that's inspiring. You get it now? 
Black history is not being told to inspire us, it's being told to demoralize us, all of us. Modern black history centers white people for a specific reason, the destruction of America. It defines white people as evil and black people as irrelevant, except for what our lives say about white people. The point of black history is to argue that America was founded in wickedness and must be made anew. The truth is all nations are founded in wickedness because their founders are flawed sinners. What makes America unique is that our flawed founders recognize their sinful nature and infuse the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution in biblical Judeo-Christian principles. Our founding documents are the vaccine for evil. Just like the COVID experimentals, the documents don't prevent evil, but they lessen the symptoms. They protect all of us. The enemies of American freedom are using black history to undermine faith in our founding documents and Christian values. They're using black history and Black History Month to divide us. You can see their strategy in the 1619 Project. You can see it in small things that seem totally disconnected. Let me give you an example. On Sunday morning, my college roommates stopped by my apartment for breakfast. They turned on the NFL Network to watch a one-hour documentary on Jim Brown, the running back legend. I'm friends with Jim. I've visited his home numerous times. He's visited mine when I was living in Kansas City. I know Jim's life passion, steering black men toward behaviors that lead to success. I startled my college friends when I loudly complained that the documentary wasted way too much time focusing on white people. I snapped when it portrayed Brown's movie romance with Raquel Welch as some sort of legacy-defining moment. Watch this. One of the taboos that had long existed in America was this idea that black men were going to take white women. It's really old sort of uh, stereotype that comes out of slavery. And so to have a film where you have not any black man, but one of the most visible black men in the country have sex with this white woman who's been put up on a pedestal as a white sex symbol was really profound. Mm. Sure, it was a big moment for Todd's Boyd and all the other people, but I, I'm just sorry. To Jim Brown, it was nothing. Brown gave his time, money, and life to his Amera I Can program. Amera I Can worked primarily with black and Mexican gang members. Brown bought into the American system and started a foundation that persuaded other men to buy in and adopt principles and behaviors that lead to success. Pretending to have sex with Raquel Welch is way far down on Jim Brown's list of accomplishments. Jim has and had no real interest in the second place Olympics set up for black people. What I mean by that is Jim wasn't motivated by being the first black person to do X, Y, or Z. Jim wanted to be the first person. The race to be the first black person is a race for second, third, or fourth place. Jim Brown had no interest in that. He wanted to be the best, compete with the human race. Much of black history is about second place because it centers white people. Our accomplishments only have relevance and merit when they're compared to white people. The way we currently teach black history convinces black people to see the love, grace, and mercy of white people as the key to black salvation. It goads us into believing our interaction with white people is a hundred times more important than our engagement with black people. The way black history is taught powered the creation of Black Lives Matter, the political movement that prioritizes black murder based on the skin color of the perpetrator. It's why George Floyd's death according to President Biden, had more impact on the world than Martin Luther King's. What happened to George Floyd was tragic. What Martin Luther King did 
was inspiring. We foolishly believe our lives are about what happens to us, not what we do. George Floyd is celebrated for winning the race to victimhood. He did nothing. He's the fastest victim in the history of victimhood. He transformed himself from a drug addict, criminal, porn actor, to African-American hero in a matter of minutes. Black history has programmed black people to memorize and recite every bad interaction they've had with white people and or the police. Meanwhile, we've been brainwashed into believing our treatment of each other, totally irrelevant. The KKK and the Proud Boys are an existential threat to the black community. The Bloods and the Crips, uh, they're just an inconvenience. Anyone who disagrees with those assessments is a white supremacist or the black face of white supremacy. According to modern black history, Carter G. Woodson would likely be regarded as a black face of white supremacy. On Tuesday, in case you don't know, Art Browse, former coach of the Baylor Bears, four-day coach of Grambling, he was railroaded and denied a chance at redemption that most athletes would have been given the benefit of. I don't know. Take a listen and see what you think. Pretty interesting little conversation here. Art Browse is worthy of redemption. The redemption the sports world afforded Kobe Bryant. You can make an argument that the former Baylor head football coach is more worthy of grace and mercy than the former NBA legend. But it appears the 66-year-old offensive guru won't get a shot at redemption. Yesterday, just four days after taking the offensive coordinator job at Grambling State University, and only hours after the school's head coach, Hugh Jackson, released a strong statement in support of Browse, Browse resigned. He said he doesn't want to be a distraction. The school's biggest star, former NFL quarterback Doug Williams, said he did not support Browse's hire. Corporate media and blue check social media influencers also did not support Browse's hire. A USA Today columnist Dan Wolken labeled Browse forever radioactive. Seems odd. Browse's alleged crime is not nearly as reprehensible as the alleged misdeeds of countless football players who get second and third chances. From Cincinnati Bengals running back Joe Mixon, to former NFL quarterback Michael Vick, all the way down to former Cowboys defensive end Greg Hardy, I have passionately defended their rights to resume work and redeem themselves. That's America, the land of opportunity. Our country and our sports culture allowed Kobe Bryant to ascend today to a deity. Both Browse and Bryant were entangled in high-profile sexual assault scandals. In July of 2003, a teenage hotel clerk accused Bryant of rape. She later refused to testify in a criminal case. Bryant reached a financial settlement with his accuser in a civil case. He publicly apologized for the incident while maintaining his innocence. I'm gonna read from Kobe's statement back then. First, I wanna apologize directly to the young woman involved in this incident. I wanna apologize to her for my behavior that night and for the consequences she has suffered in the past year. I also wanna make it clear that I do not question the motives of this young woman. Although I truly believe this encounter between us was consensual, I recognize now that she did not and does not view this incident the same way I did. End quote. Other than Michael Jordan, Bryant is the most revered basketball player of the last 40 years, surpassing Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and LeBron James. In terms of worship, Bryant eclipses Jordan. It is high risk to publicly criticize Bryant and or discuss the rape allegation that momentarily stained his reputation. The rapper Snoop Dogg threatened Oprah Winfrey's best friend, Gail King, for asking an interview subject about Bryant's alleged sexual assault. Bryant is treated as a deity. Art Browse is treated as a pariah. 
In 2015, Baylor fired Brown Browse over a law after a law firm, Pepper Hamilton, the school hired, issued an oral report that revealed more than 100 campus-wide rape allegations. Five of the allegations involved Baylor football players. Browse did not sexually assault anyone. He recruited a handful of players who, like Bryant, were accused of rape. Most people who have examined the case closely, including yours truly, believe Browse and his black football players were used as scapegoats to cover up a campus-wide problem at the private Baptist University. Baylor had failed to adopt federal laws and guidelines to protect student safety. The Pepper Hamilton report put the entire university in the crosshairs. That's why the report was delivered orally. No written record to be subpoenaed later. The school's Board of Regents then took the additional step of hiring a San Francisco public relations firm, J.G. Bunning, that promises to change the narrative. When administrators realized that Browse and his supporters would not disappear quietly, Browse filed a wrongful termination lawsuit. The public relations firm worked with a Wall Street Journal reporter to escalate the allegations against Browse and his football program. With virtually no evidence, the Journal reported that Pepper Hamilton really discovered 17 allegations of sexual misconduct against Baylor football players. America's football-hating sports journalists slash tweeters surmised that canceling and further vilifying Art Browse were the best ways to clean up football's toxic masculine culture. And Baylor was able to pretend that once it rid itself of Browse, it had taken a major step in reducing sexual violence. According to court documents, Baylor's former athletics director, Ian McCall, stated the school used Browse and black football players to cover up a problem that existed on the school's campus for decades. But we all know that football is the catalyst for rape and other forms of sexual assault on college campuses. It's not the prevalence of drugs and alcohol. It's not the hypersexualized music played at social gatherings. It's not the normalizing of sexual promiscuity and pornography. It's not the secularized values promoted on college campuses. It's football and men like Art Browse, everybody knows it. If Browse is allowed to call plays at Grambling State, sexual assault cases will jump three to 5% in year one and another 2% in year two. The narrative changing San Francisco public relations firm's J.G. Bunning did its job. It summoned a social media lynch mob and strung up Art Browse. I have a great deal of respect for Doug Williams. He's a good man. I wish he had done some basic homework before using his influence, his influence to undermine Browse and Hugh Jackson. Williams admitted he doesn't know Art Browse and has never talked with him. Williams apparently accepted the corporate and social media narrative about Browse. It's not accurate. No different from the people who claim the media narrative about Kobe's Colorado encounter is inaccurate. I don't pretend to know the whole truth about Bryant or Browse. I just know they're both worthy of a shot at redemption. Browse might be more worthy. His parents died in a car accident when he was in college. Kobe is the son of a former professional basketball player. Kobe was an elite global citizen long before it became popular. Whatever. The standard can't be that talented black athletes accused of and or convicted of crimes get to resume their careers and super talented white coaches must be removed from society. Eric Bieniemy, everyone's favorite black NFL assistant coach, has several female-related criminal allegations in his past. That has not stopped one member of the media from saying NFL owners are racist for failing to promote him to a head coach. Doug Williams and everyone else should rethink their position on Art Browse. At some point, the standard we apply to Browse will be applied to us. Now, 
in case a lot of you were like me and you fell asleep Tuesday night and allowed the presidential State of the Union to watch you, you'd know that on Wednesday, Jason had a field day with Joe Biden's State of the Union address. If you don't listen to nothing else, listen to the big guy going on this one. Last night was probably one of the first times I ever felt like I was in with both feet on the political discussion. Anybody that has uh, followed my career, followed my work as a journalist, as a writer, and as a broadcaster, I've tried to stay above the political fray. I feel like over the past uh, four to five years, I've been pulled into the political fray uh, in, in an uneasy fashion. But last night was the first time I was like, oh, I got both feet on the ground. I know exactly what I think. Uh, what is transpiring sparks something in me. And I feel more confident. And, and so, again, who knows if I'll ever vote? I, I, I seem to be heading that direction that, that I'm going to. Uh, but I really have always made an attempt to stay above the political fray because I don't like politicians, period. And the thing that appealed to me about Donald Trump was that he wasn't a politician. And so he had the ability to be authentic, where I think most politicians are incredibly inauthentic. And so what we witnessed last night during that State of the Union address reminded me again of why I don't like politics, why I don't like politicians, why I believe they're all inauthentic, inauthentic. because Joe Biden last night tried to morph in to Donald Trump. We've watched Joe Biden and the Democratic Party for the past five years, anything Trump related is the worst thing in the plant, on the planet. Trump supporters and what they think are the worst people on the planet. And then last night, I'm watching a State of the Union address that was a celebration of Donald Trump, his supporters, and pretty much all that they believe. And this was done with a straight face. This incredible pivot by Joe Biden was done with a, face, a straight face without any acknowledgement of what their positions were before, what they believed in before. And I think this is all a reflection of they've stuck their fingers in the air, the pollsters have stuck their fingers in the air, and the whole Democratic uh, demonization of America, demonization of the working man and woman has blown up in their face and they know that in November there's going to be some historic backlash, tidal wave against the Democratic Party. And Joe Biden last night tried to pivot to Donald Trump talking points. And that's why I'm calling last night B-MAGA. That's what Joe Biden was trying to do. He was trying to be MAGA. Biden makes America great again. That's what the State of the Union was. And it wasn't just Joe Biden, because the thing you have to understand about a State of the Union, particularly in this era, it's just a one hour commercial for whatever party is in power. And so that was a choreographed commercial last night from start to finish. Everybody that Joe Biden called out in the audience was personally picked for a specific, uh, specific reason. And they were supposed to represent something specific. Every, uh, all the little talking points and, and the, the applauses are all calculated and orchestrated the, 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 the wait for the applause. 
And then I thought in, in the moment that nearly made me fall off my couch as I was watching this, and, and this is where we start, because I'm, I'm gonna walk you through what I thought were some of the critical, pivotal things that were said last night in the State of the Union. For the most part, I'm gonna do them in order, but I'm gonna start about 30 minutes into his address. And then I'll go back to some things that happened in the beginning, because I thought this was the moment where I was like, Look at these mofos. They have no idea who they are or what they were representing just three months ago, six months ago, 12 months ago, the entire time uh, Trump was president. And they think they can take their mask off at the perfect time. Oh, State of the Union. We've been running around with masks on for two years and scold anybody that doesn't wear a mask and we're gonna take them off and we can be just become completely new. It was almost, like there was a baptism last night and the Democratic Party and Joe Biden were born again, made anew by political polls. But here's the moment where Joe Biden starts talking about inflation and says something about make it in America and as the Democrats follow the script, they start chanting USA, USA, USA at the end of this. Play the clip. One way to fight inflation is to drive down wages and make Americans poor. I think I have a better idea to fight inflation. Lower your costs, not your wages. <laughs> Folks. make more cars and semiconductors in America, more infrastructure and innovation in America, more goods moving faster and cheaper in America, more jobs where you can earn a good living in America. Instead of relying on foreign supply chains, let's make it in America. Look, economists, Are you kidding me? The party that for the past five, six years has framed America as irredeemably, systemically racist. The party that has sat by and applauded as Antifa, and Black Lives Matter denigrated every historical monument, every founding principle we have in America. The party who has propped up itself on the notion that America is evil is now chanting USA, USA, USA. That was straight out of a Trump rally. You, you can't make that kind of pivot in an instance without any explanation. Hey guys, I know I've been up here telling you that, you know, America is systemically racist and it's unfair to everybody and, and black people got a raw deal and gay people got a raw deal and trans people got a raw deal. And, and we need to, re, we need to uh, take guns away from people and we need to uh, rewrite this constitution. Now it's USA, USA, USA. This is choreographed. That was not remotely spontaneous. That was Joe Biden and the Democratic Party trying to hold a Trump rally. USA Today, Again, because all of this is choreographed. USA Today uh, had wrote a column uh, today, and I'm sure this writer, Kurt Bardella, was tipped off. 
Biden used State of the Union speech to take proud to be American from the GOP. And, and some people will hear this as political partisanship. I'm just speaking facts. The proud to be American thing is really not a GOP thing. It is to some degree, but that proud to be American thing, that's a Trump supporter thing. That's a MAGA thing over the last five years. As they have pushed back against the people that have been trying to frame the greatest country uh, in the history of the planet, the country that has, and this is just a fact, created the safest, most uh, financially uh, sound, positive place for black people. Black people's standard of living in America and their safety in America exceeds the safety and financial success and freedom of black people any place else on the globe. That's just a fact. And there were people that were like, hey man, I, I, I get that what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd is wrong. But let's don't lose sight of the fact that no place on the planet do black people experience a higher standard of living and safety than here in America. But Joe Biden and the Democratic Party have spent the last five years, and probably you can take it back to the Obama administration, trying to convince you that America is the most evil place on, on earth and America has its foot on the neck of black people and what a shame. If this country isn't more like Europe and more like this place and part of this global society that has its foot on the neck of dark-skinned people all over the world, we need to be more like them and less like America. And so, and again, I know that's not well, it is part of the primary issue going on with Trump people. Is they like, hey man, this country is good to all of us. And we're tired of hearing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic Party and Rashida Tlaib and, and AOC tell us how bad this country is. And on Thursday show, I'm going to be honest with y'all. Jason outkicked this coverage. Somehow, someway, he went out and found, as we just talked about, Art Briles, former Baylor head coach. Guess what? The dude is in the studio. He's here to give his side of the story and tell us his side of what happened at Grambling and all of this whole thing going on. Woo! Can't wait for it. In, in your mind, what happened at Grambling? Why did you choose to step away well <clears throat> pleasure to be here jason first of all and uh you know really to, to how it all started i was my wife and i were planning on going back to italy you know we'd coached over there in a 28 not 18 and 19 and so we were headed back this spring they play a spring italian pro football league and it's a it's an awesome deal and i've really enjoyed it because it's great football but Hugh just called me out of the blue you know and said coach you want to come Coach at Grambling, you know, and I'd known him a little bit from when he's at Cleveland because I came up visiting him at Cleveland. He had four of our players on his team there. Uh, Corey Coleman, Josh Gordon, Robert Griffin III, and Spencer Drango were on his team at Cleveland. So he wanted me to come up and kind of help, you know, hang out with those guys and help them get going with the Browns. And so when he called, you know, I picked it up and he said, do you want to come to Grambling? And I'm like, yes, sir. You know, because I, when I was around him at Cleveland, I felt like his heart was in the right place. And, you know, I felt like, uh, you know, he was headed in a direction with student, with athletes at that time, not student athletes, that showed some care as a person. And that's, you know, what I've always been about. So I said, yeah, I'm in. And um, so he checked with everybody and said, coach, you're good. So I actually went there and coached for two weeks. You know, I'd been there two weeks and it, it was an unbelievable experience. And so when you were there that initial two weeks, it hadn't leaked out and what the people in the media didn't know? Well, yeah, he had announced it, but they hadn't announced it formally. So gotcha. I, was, I was on campus eating at the cafeteria, 
you know, there all day, you know, installing the offense, you know, introducing on the field with the players, with the tennis ball, which was awesome. And these, these guys are just, that, that's to me the hardest part about this deal with Grambling is it's about the student athletes. You know, I mean, I'd already formed bonds with them and, you know, I was really looking forward to, you know, going into battle with them, you know, on the football field. And, uh, you know, it just, just didn't end up happening that way. But it was uh, honestly two of the best weeks I've had in the last, you know, six years. It was just, it was a lot of fun just getting back in the office and talking football. I, I did not realize you had been there. So you'd been there two weeks. And again, I know you're saying they hadn't formally announced it, so I guess no one had formally asked Doug Williams for his opinion. Yes, sir. Uh, were you aware during that two-week period that perhaps Doug Williams was uncomfortable or making noise behind the scenes that he was on? Un- no, we, I, I had no idea. I mean, everything that I was presented with through Hugh and the athletic director was it's all good. We did, there wasn't any chatter on the outside that, that I was aware of. I, don't, I guess they weren't either. I don't know. But, um, you know, I was, I was on campus for two weeks and, you know, there early and stayed late and having fun coaching ball. And so Art Browse, one of the most successful college coaches, innovative, disruptive coaches, you know, arguably in the history of college football, he's on Grambling's campus for two weeks. Did you ever have a chance to talk or meet with Doug Williams? No, sir. No, he, I never did. And so when you read comments in the paper that he wouldn't support it, you're totally blindsided or? 100%. Uh, just kind of came out of the blue. I think that happened last Friday. Yeah. And, uh, and I have a lot of respect for Doug also, like you mentioned, you know, I can, and I'm going to hope my dates right, but I think it was 1988 uh, Super Bowl. Uh, that's when he won it with the Redskins. And I'm thinking Art Monk. I don't remember who the receivers were, but they were, they're pretty dynamic. He probably threw for the high threes, low fours that game. But uh, so it, it surprised me a little bit. You know, I knew he went to Grambling. I knew he was a coach at Grambling. Uh, but you know, when you think about Graham, you think about Ed Robinson, you know, and, and when I was a high school coach in Texas, I actually went to listen to Eddie Robinson. I think it was about 1993 at the AFCA convention front row, just cause he was, you know, he was an icon. Yes. And, um, you know, got his autograph. And the thing I loved about the talk is that he talked about everything but football, you know, and that's what I loved. He talked about, you know, helping kids, raising kids, being there for them, loving them, and just giving them direction. And, uh, you know, so that resonated with me. But even as a high school coach back then, that's, that's what I've always been about. And it goes back to how I was brought up and what I went through early in life. So that, that really uh, stood well with me. And so I, I always, when somebody says grambling, I smile. And it's called Eddie Robinson. So Hugh... Uh, share with me that he remembers your first practice and I didn't know he was talking about you know two weeks or three weeks ago or whatever when he said it but he said that you got very emotional after practice and was like you've given me my life back what 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 was it about returning to college football and returning to Grambling do do you remember that do you remember your first day that is is he said you were nearly in tears. You were so. Probably not nearly. I probably was, you know, in a, maybe shedding one or two. Just, just the joy and excitement of, of being back on the field in an environment that I've lived my whole life in. My father was a coach. That's, that's all I've ever done. I've coached for over 40 years. And, and so just being back to a place where I'm comfortable, you know, to where I feel like I can help and, and serve a purpose, uh, that that to me and just seeing the excitement in the players and and their want to and their drive and their determination and their care you know uh, all that just it means the world to me it it and i I don't want to but one of the things i've expressed in my conversations with people about this is is that the kids at grambling had an opportunity to work with a former NFL head coach 
who had run some offenses in Cincinnati for Marvin Lewis, been a head coach with the Raiders, been a head coach with the Cleveland Browns. That's their head coach. And then this head coach is smart enough to realize that he's a great offensive coach, but just being completely understood, you know, you coached at Baylor where there was a lot of funds and a lot of support. When you're coaching at an HBCU, there's, just, there's not a, a huge support staff. Funds are tight and there's fires to put out constantly. Not that they're not fires to put out at the other schools, but you having enough self-awareness to know that if I'm gonna have a dynamic offense, I gotta, I can't, it can't be me because of all the other responsibilities. And so he figures out a way to bring in an offensive genius, you don't have to comment on that, but clearly your resume uh, says that. Someone who's had a tremendous amount of success. And so the kids at Grambling were about to get the best of both worlds, a former NFL head coach and a guy that created a lot of NFL players at the collegiate level. And, and I think that's what, there was an opportunity in, to uh, give the Grambling kids the greatest gift you can give a football player, people that know how to develop them at the highest level. And, and that's what I wish people, I wonder if people have lost sight of the opportunity that's being denied the kids at Grambling. I, I think you hit it right on, Jason. And really not, not just Grambling, but HBCU. You know, what Dion's brought there and Eddie George, and now you got Hugh. And, and so I was honored, you know, to be a part of it. I really was. And it, it was very inspiring to me. And, you know, you mentioned Hugh being an offensive guy all his career. And, and it, to me, it showed just a lot of um, self-confidence on his part to say, Coach, you got it. You know, I'm, I'm going to be the head coach. You're going to be the OC, and, and we're rolling. You know, so he, he let me do that. And to me, that just shows what kind of man he is, you know, what he's trying to do. He's trying to do the best for Grambling University. And that's, you know, that's what I was all about, too. And it's, um, it's just, it's, you know, it's sad that it didn't work out. It, it's... And I don't know if I want you to comment on this, but I, I, I just want to say it that I've been trying to explain to people like there were, well, and Stephen A. Smith, and maybe we still have that clip. Uh, we used it a couple of days ago, but Stephen A. Smith's on ESPN and saying, this is gonna go down on Hugh Jackson's legacy that at a HBCU, basically he inferred that they didn't give a black coach that job. And, and I've argued and explained to people like, well, hold on, man. The, the predominantly white schools can come in and take all the black talent they want and help their schools, but we can't take uh, one of the greatest uh, offensive minds and college coaches we've ever seen and have him come and help the black kids at the black school. So integration's only a one-way street. Assets going back and forth between communities is only a one-way street. Our, as, our assets go out, they get to keep their assets. And so coaching at an HBCU, what, what did, because I agree with Dion's created so much excitement and so much attention. I don't even think people are aware that some of these schools uh, at, at particular games are averaging 50, 60,000 people. And so you are aware that like HBCUs or football is having a, a renaissance and they're starting and you want to be a part of that. I, I did. I, I, I've always, my whole career, Jason, it's, it's been about going to places that we're going to climb, you know, from, from high school, collegiately, University of Houston and at Baylor. And this was the same scenario there for, for me, you know, as, as an inspiration because I want to see places change, I want to see people exceed, and I want to see alumni happy and proud, you know, and uh, so that, that to me was a, was a great opportunity, you know, for the university. And, um, you know, I just, I, you know, I, I, for what Hugh Jackson tried to make happen, you know, I applaud him, I really do, because in his mind, 
rightfully so professionally, he was doing the right thing for those student athletes. And at the end of the day, that's, that's, that's all it's about. You know, that's, that's your legacy. Your legacy's the love and the support and the growth you put in those young student athletes as they carry on. My, my proudest moments of, college, of coaching college football are first-generation graduates. That's the proudest moments I have. You know, when these, when these kids can stand there and be a college graduate for the first, first person in their family and they got a young daughter and son looking up at them some days thinking, well, if daddy can do that, I can do it. It, it just changes generations. So that, that was, you know, my main goal any, any college job I've ever been at. And so uh, we have a contributor on this show, great young man, uh, former University of Missouri wide receiver, uh, TJ Moe. He played at Mizzou when you were at Baylor, I think played against you a couple of times. Uh, TJ's a great guy, Christian, all the right values. And, and he, he was upset that you stepped away from this Grambling situation. He, why didn't he stand there and fight, blah, blah, blah. And, and I was saying to him, like, now come on, TJ. I, I, I don't think Art quit here. I, I think Art was made an offer he couldn't refuse. Is, is that accurate? <laughs> I mean, you, you're, you're on it, Jason. I would never step away from uh, a chance to help young people, not voluntarily. And so you just took the high road by putting out that statement and, and you know, didn't want to burn any bridges or point any fingers. Didn't want Grambling to go through uh, a media flurry that uh, could be avoided. You know, that's, that's it. But, uh, you know, I, w I was very anxious and very excited and very driven to go help the Grambling Tigers and the G-Men and Coach Jackson in that university. I'll just say that. And I was presented with a situation that it looked like it was not going to happen. And so, and again, this is my thoughts. Don't attach these to anyone else. But is there a potential Hail Mary to be thrown here in terms of have, have you or Hugh reached out to Doug Williams and said, hey, man, could, could, could you and uh, uh, Coach Browse sit down and, and maybe get to know each other and see if there's not some common ground here, or you can't hear his story and understand it from his perspective? H have you thought about reaching out to Doug Williams, you and Hugh Jackson, perhaps? I, I know that Coach Jackson has. I know that he talked with, he, with uh, Doug earlier, you know, this week, and uh, I, I really don't know how it went, but I know that they spoke, and uh, yeah, certainly I would, you know, talk with him at any time, uh, you know, just to give him an opportunity to ask me any questions that he wanted to ask and to get to, you know, know, know where my heart is and soul, you know, but um, so I don't know if there's a Hail Mary or not to answer, answer your question. I would always hope so. You know, you, you'd hate to always say it's over when maybe it's not over. So I'm, I've, I've learned the last few years to remain faithful and hopeful and, and, and always ready. So I'm, you know, I'm sitting on go. And so let's say they did circle back. You would be willing to go back to Gramley? Right now, we'd, we'd have to cut this interview short. <laughs> there's work to be done. Hey, and on Friday's show, Jason discusses the interview by former NBA player J.R. Smith gave when he talked about having NBA players using their money to give back to their community. I don't know. I think he told a story about he saw a player blow 60000 in a strip club one night but couldn't give any money to a homeless person. Take a listen. Think about it. I've done it. I've been, I, can't, I can't sit here and be like, oh, man, I'm a hypocrite. I've done this myself. I've thrown money in the club, literally, blindly, aimlessly drunk at a ball. And now I sit back like I'm a stupid ass. But just phenomenal what he just said and talked about. I think that's J.R. Smith. But uh, <laughs> ph ph phenomenal what he just said, although... 
there are some glaring errors in what he just said. And that's why, but, but I want to start with the positive. He has said things that I think many people with common sense have said over and over and over again. Hey, you athletes, he says when he's pointed Paul George and Kawhi Leonard or, you know, whoever he said he was, Paul George and Russell Westbrook and DeMar DeRozan, what he, he said, you've made 200 million, you've made 150 million, you've, you've made 180 million, what, whatever the numbers he threw out. And he goes, you're all from LA, you could pull your resources and do whatever you want to do in LA. Rather than looking up to the owner, hey, what are you gonna do? Do something for us, we can't do anything for ourselves. J.R. Smith, in retirement, long after he's blown a bunch of money, doing dumb stuff, has figured out like, no, you're capable of doing things for yourself, why don't you? And then he said the most honest thing, and then if anybody else says it, oh, they're a sellout, they're an Uncle Tom, they're uh, uh, a white supremacist. But he said, you know, I look like, sound like, and what I was doing made me look like a dumb N-word. That's a real, honest statement, conversation they were having. And that's why hats off uh, to Brandon Marshall and all those guys involved with I Am Athlete and that podcast. They're finally moving the conversation a positive direction. And so my initial thoughts, and again, it's, it's a full hour, hour and 15 uh, minute video or interview and there's a lot to it, and so not all of it is directly on point. But man, I was impressed that they were even having this conversation. So I just want to start with the positive and the affirmation of, thanks for having the conversation, JR. Thanks for keeping it real. And, and I, I want to bring Royce into it because he moves in those circles, the basketball circles, the athlete circles, where these guys do have and have made all of this money. How many of them do you think have the kind of conversation, and I think many of them do, have the kind of conversations that Brandon Marshall and J.R. Smith was having, but, and realize everything that J.R. Smith is saying is true, but won't do anything about it. Royce, do you think what J.R. Smith, his mindset and what he's talking about, is that commonplace among athletes, even though they don't express it publicly? I think a lot of athletes have those conversations. I think there's a huge difference between theory and practice. And, you know, shout out to J.R. Smith, man. I, I mean, I, I didn't watch the entire interview, but I saw that portion of it. And, and I absolutely love uh, what, where his mind is. I think, you know, part of this entire problem that we have with black athletes in the black community is that we don't really have a community. We have a bunch of people who look similar that live in, in particular places. That, that's not a community. You're not a community unless you actively are helping one another try to uh, achieve a, a better standard of living, a better way of life, security and opportunity. And we've really failed in that as the black community. Um, and part of that is, is centered around the fact that we, we have, we're, we're identity-less. We don't have an identity, right? We've kind of forsaken this American identity, as you alluded to in your intro, where people want to throw out the Constitution. But but all of the value that we hold inherently from being born in this country comes from the Constitution and being a citizen. And there's two ways that you exercise that. You exercise that through your vote and through your dollar. Now, there are other ways to exercise that, but th that's the fundamental basis of how we exercise that. So, you know, I think we've squandered both. We've squandered our vote. And we squandered our dollar and, and we don't understand the value of ownership and equity. And so to, to, to one of your points that you made about the George Floyd situation and the players asking the owners for something, here's where I would deviate. I, I wrote a letter to Kyrie Irving uh, that was entitled Operation Black Bank and it was published in, the, in Sports Illustrated. And I think that it was rightful for the players to come together and have an ask because the NBA was surely going to use that moment to try and cash in on the social capital. 
And so if the NBA was going to try and advertise that moment as where Black Lives Matter, which they were going to do irregardless of whatever the players asked for, then they better have to pay to play because that's how America works. If we're the black community and our skin is going to become a commercial endeavor through Black Lives Matter and this liberal media establishment, you're going to have to pay to play and we're going to decide where that money should go. Now, what they did was squander that opportunity. And what I told Kyrie Irving is instead of putting some arbitrary number towards you know, a social justice coalition, why not just come out and ask for the money to put a black bank in each community? And, and to J.R. Smith's detriment in his piece where he, why don't you guys have a gym? Who cares about a gym? And, and I'm not knocking him, right? I understand what he's saying, and that's kind of just his background. But what I'm saying is if you work from the but, top but Hold down, for one second. Yeah. Don't lose your thought, but I do want to defend J.R. in this aspect. He's saying that Having our own gym is also an investment in us. We, we go to UCLA, kids come around to see us working out and things like that. Why don't, th this is our content, our bodies, people are interested in seeing us play. Why don't we have a gym so that when uh, we do a summer league event or what, like a Rucker League or what, I, I, the Drew League out in California or whatever, we could actually do it at our own gym and then have it there as a, a help, a service to the rest of the community. I don't have any problem with him staying in his lane. He's an athlete. How, he's trying to figure out how we can maximize what we do while it works for us. And again, there are bigger things to do, but at least he's thinking about things he can do that work for him and could work for the community. And I totally feel him. And I think we should have our own gyms. I think we should make investments in our community. But what the black elites in our country have to understand, and many of them are the black bourgeoisie that have sold this out. And it's not by accident that they sold this out. But here's what we have to understand. Our entry point and access to capital comes through, sorry about that, comes through basketball players and other entertainers. Right. This is where our access to capital is 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 sort of galvanized. And so it does become incumbent upon these black basketball players, entertainers, actresses, comedians, people who get that access to large amounts of capital and credit to expand what their lane is, because we don't have those traditional businessmen, bankers, attorneys, real estate property moguls that understand how you build wealth. And so in, in the way that you build wealth is through ownership. And, and the other way you build wealth is through access to credit. OK, so once you build a bank and, it, and listen, he said 60,000 and we're talking about 100 million dollar contracts. It's only 12 to 15 million dollars to build a bank. It's not even that expensive. OK, so you build the bank first, but, then you can build the gym, then you can buy the property and the but, land. But, but, but Royce, I, I just I want to defend Jr. because I got some criticisms of what he talked about. But I want to defend Jr. He's on a journey, and ju you got to remember, he's running the same marathon as you, except you're on mile 24. He's on mile one. And what I'm celebrating, just want to uh, express positive energy toward he's entered the marathon of life he's on the journey if he wants to start with a gym trust me when he's on that path now he's attracted a royce white to say oh well let me go engage with uh, jr smith and and help him catch up to see what jim is great but as we move forward let's make sure we have a bank and we keep recirculating our investment dollars in our community and we keep it all within us, uh, our community, that's, I, I, just cause you're on mile 24, don't look back and the people that just starting to race and be like, come on, well, how come y'all ain't up here second. with me? Wait a second. <laughs> wait a second. I got nothing but love for JR and what he said and I think he's on the right track. My point is not to say that he is mistaken or off the track with his position. My point is to actually use him as a way to point to all of the people who have been given access to larger amounts of money in a platform to talk about things that are in no way going to uh, change the circumstance of black America because they're anti-American. 
LeBron James and a number of other types of people we could mention. So I don't have a problem with where J.R. Smith is at. I think that we have to understand that even J.R. Smith's little entry point is breaking through the crack. It's, it's squeezing through the crack of a narrative that, that, that's been captured by a liberal establishment who has no interest in what J.R. Smith is talking about. And that's why a message like that would, would actually squeak through the cracks if a person like you didn't promote it and highlight it. And we have to be mindful of that. And as the black community, we have to understand we're in a crisis and it's here right now. And we're on the brink of World War III. We don't have 24 more miles to catch up to where the rest of America is. The future of America may actually depend on black America in many respects and us coming around to being a real force and demographic in this country. We don't have all the time in the world. Well, Royce, I certainly agree with that. I think that uh, so-called black America has been critical to the success of this country for the entire time and not just through labor. Uh, I, I think we served as America's moral conscious for a long time and kept our, uh, our moral compass on the right track. And that's why our moral compass has been perverted. It's been intentional uh, to remove the black man from any sort of morality, any sort of relationship with Jesus Christ. And God, this is all intentional. As I said, I'm Uncle Jimmy. Go to YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit the likes. Hit the subscribe button. Join the Fearless Army. Get the Fearless gear. Get swaggy with it, baby. Let's make it happen. Be fearless. Be fearless.